Marriage is more than the warm, fuzzy feelings you experience during the honeymoon phase. It's a journey through good times and bad, through seasons when you've got it all figured out and when nothing makes sense. God chose your spouse for you and you alone to walk through life with, to strengthen your spiritual life with, and to experience the highs and lows together with God at the center leading the way. Marriage is a precious gift. It's meant to be enjoyed, cherished, and protected. For when we experience marriage the way God intended, we discover that the honeymoon experience can last a lifetime. Good morning, church family here at Sugarland and in Missouri City. Come on, let's welcome our Missouri City campus and all those who are joining in live or sometime this week. We're grateful to be here as one church meeting in multiple locations, just gathering around the Word of God. My name is Libin Abraham, and I get the joy of being one of the pastors here. And over the last four weeks, we've been talking about marriage and visiting God's design, His purpose, His plan for marriage and for your marriage. And today, we're wrapping up this four-week series. And to next week, we're beginning a brand new series called Thriving in a Hostile World, looking at the book of James and what God has to say to us, and not just surviving, but thriving in the context of our world today. When women say they have nothing to wear, what they mean is that they have nothing new to wear. Guys, you agree? When guys say they have nothing to wear, what they mean is that they have nothing clean to wear. They really don't have anything to wear. When a wife invites her husband to come and watch TV with her, she's really wanting a conversation. But when a guy invites his wife to come and watch TV with her, he really just wants to watch TV, <laughs> not interested in a conversation at all. I think you and I both agree that men and women are equal, but we are different. We are different. How many of you would be bold enough to say, you know what, I am a little different than my spouse. Go ahead and put your hands up if there are some differences. Look at all of these incompatible people in the room, probably on both campuses. campuses. Of course, we're different. Stacey and I, we love each other. We get along so great, but we're different. I'm an extrovert, man. I love meeting new people all the time. She's an introvert. She enjoys building deeper relationships all the time. Uh, I tell her if it wasn't for me, she would have like two good friends. And if it wasn't for her, I would have no real friends at all. Now, we complement and we build each other because we're different. Now, we know we're different, but what we need to remind ourselves is that God made us different on purpose. He made us different on purpose. Jesus said in Matthew 19 like this, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. God on purpose made you different. He made you male and female. He made us with different temperaments and perspectives and personalities all on purpose. And for what purpose did he do that? Going back to Genesis 1 verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God exists in the perfect trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all united as one, but very distinct in their personalities, in their role, in the plan of redemption. But in the trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, although they are distinct, they are one. They're exalting each other, perfect harmony of love and purpose. They're different, but one. 
And when God made mankind in his image, he made us male and female. Different so that, especially in the context of marriage, our marriage unity and our marriage intimacy through our difference is what best displays the image of God in the world. If we were all identical, one of us would be unnecessary. But God made us different. He made us different so that when we figure out how to work with one another and be united, different but one, that's when we deeply display and glorify the image of God in our life. Last week, Pastor Mark did an amazing job taking us through the five stages of marriage. And the first stage is the stage of honeymoon where you're convinced that you are so perfect and the other person is so perfect and there's nothing different about you. But in stage two, reality happens. And you realize, all right, there's a few things that are a bit different in us. And what couples do in that stage of how they cope with their differences makes or breaks the rest of their Marriage, And sometimes we'll view our differences and say, well, now we're incompatible with our differences. And we'll even term things like irreconcilable differences. And on that account, many will end their marriage. But I want you to hear me today. God purposefully made you and your spouse different. And one of the things you realize in that stage two of your marriage is that you and your spouse have a different primary emotional need. You have a different primary emotional need. And it's so important, so critical that we understand what that is so that we can strive with our energy and our focus and our time to meet that particular need in your spouse that might be different than in you. The Apostle Paul gives us the difference in our primary need in Ephesians 5, verse 33, when he says like this, so again I say, he is summing an amazing treatise on marriage, one of the most profound descriptions of marriage, and he's emphasizing again, I want to remind you, you got to know this if you want your marriage to work, you got to be remembered by this. I say to you, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. A man ought to love his wife as he loves himself, and the women are to respect her husband. Now, on a basic level, at a foundational level, both men and women both need love and respect. We need love and respect to thrive, to flourish, to be content in our heart. We need both of those things. So yes, we all need love and respect. But Paul is drawing an emphasis to a need that is greater than in a man and to a need that is greater in a woman. And he is saying, here is a point of our greatest vulnerability that for a woman, it's when she lacks love. And for a man, his point of great vulnerability is when he lacks respect. There's a book called Love and Respect you might be familiar with, written by Dr. Emerson Egrich, where he talks about this idea and he puts the statement to the test. Is it really due? Does research and, and who we are as men and women, does it back up this statement? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, he asked couples, uh, 7,000 people actually, he asked 7,000 people, when you're in a moment of conflict, in a moment of tension, do you feel unloved or disrespected? Guys and girls, when you're in a moment of conflict, do you feel unloved or disrespected? And this was the answer that people gave. 83% of men said that they feel disrespected. And 72% of the women said they feel unloved. Dr. John Gottman is a 
leading researcher and psychologist who's been, who's been studying for the last 50 or so years, uh, marital stability. And he once led a research team to study 2,000 couples from all over the world with diverse backgrounds and upbringings and lifestyles and economic standings. And he brought as different couples as he can imagine, 2,000 of them. But they've been married for 20 to 40 years. And they were deeply fulfilled in their marriage or satisfied in their marriage. And the subject of the study was to find out what is the greatest contributing factor in their marriage that makes them have a fulfilling, satisfying marriage? What makes them happy? Why do they have such a fulfilling marriage? And here was the result as he studied these couples. He put his result in these words. What I saw in these couples, 2,000 couples who were deeply fulfilled, was a strong undercurrent of two basic ingredients, love and respect. No matter how different they are, no matter what background all of these thousands of couples have come from, what was common in every one of these couples who have a fulfilling marriage was when they talked to each other, when they made decisions in studying their marriage, there was an undercurrent of love and respect. 400 men were asked this question, if you had to choose one of these two scenarios to endure, one of these two cases to endure, which one would you rather endure? And scenario number one was, would you rather be, first of all, left alone and unloved in the world, or number two, would you rather feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone? Here are the two scenarios. If you had to choose, which one would you choose? 74% of these men said if they were forced to choose, they would prefer being alone and unloved rather than being inadequate and disrespected. So long before any of these studies took place, Paul is saying exactly how God wired us with our deep need and points of vulnerability. That men, we get our emotional need met when we feel respected and women, you feel, your emotional bank is increasing. You feel secure when you feel loved. And interestingly enough, Paul commands the spouse to meet the greatest need in the other and vice Versa. So let's look at the first command. Husbands, love your wife. Love your wife. And the first thing I want you to know about this whole idea of love is that love is not emotion-oriented. It is action-oriented. Love isn't a noun that you just somehow find yourself in. It's a verb. It's action-driven. You don't feel to love. You choose to love. Love isn't based on emotion. Emotions are great and you can have the emotion of love, but love is far beyond emotion. It is action-oriented. It's not just about a feeling. It's about a choosing. Why do I say this? Well, Paul is commanding us to love our wife. And often in scriptures, whether it be Jesus or other disciples, when they write the scriptures, it's a command to love. It's an imperative. And guess what? You cannot command an emotion. If I were to tell you on both campuses, be happy. Right now, you need to be happy. You're not feeling any different. Or if I were to command you to be sad or angry or frustrated just by me commanding an emotion doesn't make the emotion real. So this is why emotions can be commanded, but actions can be commanded. And in fact, this is how Jesus defined love in John 13. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus said it like this, A new command I give you, not a suggestion, not an opinion, but a command I give you, which is to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. Wow, here's a new command. What is it that makes this command new? Five words, love one another as I have loved 
you. Before Jesus gave us this powerful definition of love, he gave us an even more powerful demonstration of the love he was talking about, just so that we would not be confused on what he meant. So in John 13, Jesus is having dinner with his disciples. In the course of the dinner, he gets up from the dinner table. This is in the evening. These guys have been walking all day on dirty, filthy roads, pre-Nikes, pre-rain boots. And as they're reclining at the table, reaching for dinner and their legs, hanging backwards, Jesus takes off of his back his outer garment, stoops low, and begins to wash their feet. He does what most slaves in first century wouldn't even do. He begins to wash their feet. He begins to cleanse them. He gets to Judas, his betrayer, and he washes his feet. To Peter, his denier, and he washes his feet. To Thomas, his doubter, and he still washes his feet. This is a call to love. This is the demonstration that defines what love is. Guys, there are moments, maybe daily, we need to take off our outer garments of pride, selfishness, self-interest, of getting what I want and what I need all the time. And we take that garment off and we think, how can I serve my wife? How can I wash her feet? How can I sacrifice for her? How can I meet a deep need in her life? This is a call to love. It might mean you turn off TV. You turn off ESPN. It might mean you go to a chick flick with her. Whatever it means, you're thinking, what can I do that would make the greatest influence and difference for positive things in her life? Of course, the scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet was simply an arrow that pointed to the cross where he would hang with arms spread wide, showing us the ultimate sacrifice and love of him dying for us. And so Paul put it like this in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the standard. It's a high standard. The standard is Jesus. The standard for how we love our wife is not how well our buddies are loving their wives. Or even how well your dad loved your mom. As great as that might have been or as not so great as that might have been. The standard is the love and the patience and the sacrifice of Jesus. Now you're thinking, well, I'm already off the hook because there's no way I could love like that. I get it. We're not Jesus. We're not the Son of God. But grab a hold of this. While we cannot duplicate Christ's love, while we cannot duplicate Christ's love, we are called, even commanded to imitate Christ's love. Yes, we're not going to be as perfect as Jesus. But over and over again, we are called to imitate the love of Jesus. So hopefully, guys, your love for your wife won't lead you to an actual cross, a crucifixion. But your love for your wife will call you to daily moments of sacrifice and self-denial and laying down your rights, yielding your preference for your wife. Now, the command to love our wife is irrelevant of how we feel. It's irrelevant of how we feel. Last week in that stage one of marriage, we are experiencing a surge of positive, loving, passionate emotion toward our spouse. We love each other. We feel it. We feel excited towards our spouse. But in life, there are moments where you are under the weight of responsibility and pressure and even crisis. There are moments you wake up or come home from a long day and you're thinking, I don't feel motivated or passionate to serve, to sacrifice, or to love my spouse that day. So what do you do? Here's how Timothy Keller put it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. 
in what we do in those moments. He said, you do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, and eager to please, but in your actions you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through these dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep. And you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what happens when you decide to love. Not when you feel like loving, but when you decide. When you make love a verb, an action-oriented reality in your life. We love one another like this. Second of all, to love your spouse is to pursue her and to protect her as greatly valuable as someone, something that is so precious, as greatly valuable. I love this Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. It says like this, if a man has recently married, guys, you're going to love this. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he used to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Whoa. That's better than paternity leave. One year, you're going to stay home, no job, no work. You can't be sent off. You can't be drafted. One year, all obligations are removed, and your number one responsibility is to satisfy, to pursue, to bring happiness to your wife. I know that's not very practical in today's world. But yet, we're all still called to pursue, to make priority, to carve out space, to set a tone in our marriage of pursuing our spouse. And the reason this law was given was so that what they did in this first year of their marriage would set the tone for the rest of their life. When they got busy and had to go off and fight a battle, this would still set the tone in their heart of loving, pursuing, and protecting his wife. If you're anything like me. Some of our greatest days of pursuing our wife was pre-marriage, pre-wedding day. I remember my proposal day. Oh, it was the most stressful I had ever been. I had sweats, like bullets of sweats just shooting through my veins because I was so stressed. I had planned. I had been thoughtful. I had been so intentional, and I wanted to get it right. But then it dawned on me, that shouldn't be the most thoughtful I've ever been. My greatest days of pursuing my wife shouldn't be pre-marriage but post Marriage. Let me ask you this. Didn't you love Jesus or don't you love Jesus more and don't you pursue Jesus more after you've been saved and after you've entered a covenant with him? Of course. Because when we've tasted how good he is and seen his wonders in our life, we want to keep giving. We want to keep serving him. We want to keep worshiping him because we've seen how amazing he is. And our love for our Savior increases every day as we're walking in a relationship with Jesus So in the context of our marriage, post our vows and post getting the girl of our dreams, we are to pursue and make her a priority because women need to be cherished, prized, pursued. This is how they feel secure deep inside of their heart. There's a national survey that often asks women, what about your husband makes him so attractive to you? What is the number one factor that makes your husband most attractive? And this is the answer at the top of the survey every single year. I am most attracted to my husband when he is doing housework. (laughs) Some elbows going on in the room. Yes, I'm most into my husband. I'm most attracted to my husband when he's doing housework. So guys, it's not about being in the gym six days a week or getting an amazing tan. 
It's about picking up a vacuum or a mop and say, how can I serve you, lady? How can I help you? How can I take a load off of you? How can I ease the weight of your day? What can I do to serve you? I heard one lady sing, amen. Come on, somebody. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that before God gave Eve to Adam, Adam was given the responsibility of cultivating the ground and protecting the garden and working the garden, literally tilling and pursuing the ground. I think it's because God wanted to make sure that he could trust Adam with pursuing, tilling, cultivating the garden, protecting the garden before God gave Adam someone even more valuable, a woman, his wife. So man, we're called to cultivate our marriage, to pursue, to protect, to till our marriage so that it can be fruitful. The grass isn't greener somewhere over there. The grass is greener, not even just here. The grass is greener wherever you water it. The ground is fruitful wherever you cultivate it. That's when the ground bears its fruit. Adam was called to protect his wife, to protect the garden. Guys, we're called to protect our marriage, to protect our love, our spouse. How many of you locked your cars before you came into their church? You trust Sugar Creek? You trust the members of our, come on, how many of you, this is not a theoretical question, how many of you actually locked your cars? Yeah, most of you. I would imagine the same number of you locked your homes before you left house today. Why? Because you protect what's valuable. The number one reason or one of the most common reasons for marriage is falling apart is really through social media. When a husband or a wife just randomly wonders, oh, I wonder what my ex is up to. I wonder how their life turned out. So we'll type it into the search bar on Facebook or Instagram or Google even. Oh, wow, she looks great. She's successful. He's doing well. They seem happy. And you begin to let the windows down. You begin to open the door of your heart to comparison. Every time, comparison will kill contentment. And what you're doing is comparing their highlight reel to your reality and your behind the scenes. And you're wondering, man, I wish my life was like that. So let me ask you, bluntly, are there any windows open in your heart? Are there any doors that have been unlocked? Are people speaking negativity into your heart, into your marriage? Are you seeing things? Are you looking at things? Are you spending money in a way that's harmful for your marriage? We are called to protect, to pursue, to guard our marriages to something incredibly valuable. So we love our spouse, action-oriented, choosing to love, protecting, pursuing our life. Ladies, Paul calls on us, calls on each and every one of you to respect your husband, to respect your husband. Let me say this, when Paul makes this statement, this command, for ladies to respect their husband, he is not insinuating some kind of inferiority, not at all. He's not saying well, women are less and men are more and so women need to submit and respect. That's not what he's saying. Actually, the New Testament teaches the exact opposite. Paul said it like this in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying in the eyes of God, you are of equal worth and equal value. It's not inferiority and superiority. You are on a plain level in the eyes of Jesus. So this command to respect isn't because he's superior. But Paul is saying, here is how you best minister to him. Here is his greatest point of vulnerability. 
Here is how you best show love to him by honoring, by celebrating, by respecting him. Paul told Titus in Titus 2 verse 4, then they, meaning the older women, ought to urge or encourage the younger women to love their husbands. I think this verse is fascinating because Paul uses a very different word for love here. There are mainly three words for love in the Greek. The first one is agape. It's this unconditional, self-giving, deep love. And that's the word Paul used in Ephesians 5 when he told us to love our wife, to agape our wives. And the second one is phileo, which is this friendship, this admiring, respectful kind of love. And the third one is eros, or this romantic kind of love. And here in Titus, Paul said that young women are to respect or phileo their husbands. Not phileo your husbands, but phileo <laughs> your husbands. What's the big deal? Because if I were to ask your husbands, does your wife love you? Will she give her anything for you? Does she deeply agape you? Of course, I know she loves me. But if I were to ask him, but does she like you? Oh, <laughs> not sure about today. Does she admire you? Does she respect you? Does she actually like being together? Do you enjoy the joys of, of friendship and companionship? Maybe not so much. And Paul is saying we are to not just agape our spouse, but to be friends, be respectful, be so caring of our husbands. So here's the first thing. Respect without judging. Respect without judging. Because as soon as we hear something like respect, we'll say, well, he's not worthy of my respect. He doesn't deserve my respect. He hasn't done enough to earn my respect. So we prejudge before we give respect. But you assume when Paul said that husbands are to love their wives, that he was to love them unconditionally, right? And so in the same tone, when we think about respecting our husbands, it is to respect without judging as well. Now, hear me carefully. If you're in an abusive relationship or have been, this is not permission giving to stay in that relationship if you're in harm's way. If you're in an unsafe environment where your safety is threatened, you need to get to safety. You need to get to safety. You need to put some distance. So this is not, hear me clear, this is not permission giving to respect someone that's incredibly abusive or threatening you. But when it comes to matters of opinion and preference and perspectives and you don't agree on everything and you don't see eye to eye on everything. This is a call to still respect the leadership, the role of your husband, even in the moments where you might disagree. So Peter put it like this, 1 Peter 2.17. Show proper respect to everyone without prejudging them. Show proper respect to everyone. In next chapter, 1 Peter 3.9, Peter says, don't pay back evil for evil. Or evil with evil. Don't pay back unkind words with unkind words. Instead, pay back evil with kind words. This is what you've been chosen to do. And if you do so, you will receive a blessing by doing this. I wrote this statement down that I heard this week that I thought was so great for marriage. And I think we might have it on the screen. But if not, I want you to write it down. It said it like this. Trust is earned. Respect is given, loyalty is demonstrated, and the betrayal of any one of these three is to lose all three. Trust is earned, respect is given, loyalty demonstrated, and the betrayal of any one of these three is to lose all three. 
Oftentimes, we want to give our spouse the opportunity to earn respect. But actually, you can earn trust, but respect should be given. And loyalty should be demonstrated. Second of all, respect your husband's God-given desire to lead. To lead, to provide, to protect, to, to, to fix things, to lead, to problem solve. I heard a couple who made a deal when they got married that the husband would handle all of the major life decisions and marriage decisions in their marriage. That he would handle all of the marriage decisions and the wife would handle all of the minor decisions in their life. Sound like a good deal. Well, 20 years into their marriage, the wife admitted, we just haven't faced any major issues yet. <laughs> None whatsoever. No major issues yet. No, we're called to follow the godly, self-giving leadership of our husbands. Notice 1 Corinthians 11.3, the biblical model for leadership. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Paul says, yes, the Trinity is equal, three in one, but even within the equality of the Trinity, there is an order where the Father is the head of the Son. And even in your marriage, there's an order among equals. It's the idea of first among equals. Yes, we're of equal worth and value, but there is still an order of headship. Now, guys, when, before you get too excited about this, the, the term head is a military term that Paul uses, and it was the idea that you had a rank and a responsibility over your team members, over your troops. So whenever it was time to sacrifice to give, the one who was at the head would be the first to give, the first to serve, the first to go out into battle. He would lead the charge so that his, his team would, would respect and follow the leadership of the one who was so eager to give and to serve first. So Paul is saying as a husband steps out to sacrifice, to lay his life down for his wife and to follow the leadership of God in their family, the wife joyfully follows his leadership and respects him for it. Third of all, we respect our husbands by affirming them. Respect your husband by affirming him. I want you to hear this, these next two stories and kind of compare them side by side if you could. In story number one, a husband and a wife go over to their friend's brand new house. They just bought this brand new house or built this brand new house. And so, of course, their friends take them on a tour of the house. And wow, these, this house is remarkable. I mean, beautiful stonework and stucco and marble tiles and self-standing standing up tubs and, and walk-in closets and the most beautiful fixtures and elegant granite. And so the wife leans over to her husband and says, well, looks like you need to get a second job, honey. <laughs> she just casually said those words and moved on. What the husband really heard is, you're not good enough. You're inadequate. You don't make enough money. You need to do more. I'm not satisfied with our life. And this has deflated him. And an hour later, he's not talking. He's not engaging. So she says, what's wrong, honey? To which he says, nothing. Nothing at all. But in his heart, these mere words have crushed him. Here's story number two. A husband tells his wife, today, honey, I'm going to go ask my boss for a raise. He's been working hard, producing, getting there early, staying late. He's going to ask his job for 
his, his boss for a raise, so they pray together. He goes on to work, and he asks his boss for a raise, and he grants it to him. He gives him a raise. He's so excited, and so as he's about to leave work, he calls his wife. He says, honey, I got the raise. He gave me the raise. He is so overjoyed, and they celebrate and thank God on the phone together. He gets home, and she's prepared for him this magnificent night, candlelight dinner with his favorite dish. And by his meal is a note, a handwritten note, and this is what the note said. It said this, congrats on the raise, honey. You deserve it. This dinner is just to tell you how much I love you and how much I appreciate you. Wow. This meant so much to him. They get through the dinner and they're all cleaning up together. And out of our pocket accidentally falls out this other note. This is plan B note in case he doesn't get the raise. <laughs> she didn't know this. So he picked it up and reads the note that she wrote in case. And this is what the note said. Don't worry about the raise, honey. Don't worry about not getting the raise. You deserve it anyways. This dinner is just to tell you how much I love you and how much I appreciate you. Let me tell you, for that guy in that moment, the raise didn't matter anymore. What mattered was that she believed in him, that she trusted in him. She was confident in who he was and his ability to lead him. That was what mattered the most. Let me tell you, both guys and girls, words matter. Words really matter. Your tone matters. You can be right in what you say, but wrong in how you say it. And it's a tone that can deflate the heart of a man. Words and tone matters. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. According to their point of vulnerability according to their emotional, physical, mental, spiritual need that it may benefit those who listen. This is how we are to talk. This is how we are to have conversations according to their needs to build them up. And let me tell you, ladies, your husband will rise to the level of your affirmation. He will. He will rise to the level of your confidence. And so if you're constantly belittling him and tearing him down and telling him all the things he's doing wrong, he'll never rise above it. But if you say, honey, I believe in you. I'm praying for you. We can do this together. We're going to make it. You speak faith into his heart. He's already wired inside of him to prove himself honorable and respectable. So he rises to the level of your honor, of your affirmation. Because your words are self-fulfilling prophecies. In his heart and in your home. I want to end with these two motivations of loving and respecting your spouse. Two motivations to love and respect. First one is this. We do not get our need met by depriving our spouse of their need. Rather, our need is met when we focus on meeting the need of our spouse. We don't get our needs met by taking away, depriving, withholding the need of our spouse but rather by focusing on how we can meet their need. Dr. Egridge in the book Love and Respect puts up these three cycles that marriages go through. Most marriages will go through these cycles. And the first one is the crazy cycle where without his love or without his respect, she reacts without love. And vice versa, without respect, he reacts without love. So she doesn't feel loved, so she doesn't give respect, and he doesn't feel respected, so he chooses not to give or show 
Love. This is a vicious downward cycle where you're both empty, where your emotional security has been robbed because you're deprived of the very need in your heart. This is a cycle when you're both at each other's throats and you're constantly arguing, you just can't get along. And so many people, when they've lived in this cycle long enough, decide to walk away. Surely we're incompatible. Why? Because, because we feel like our need is deprived. We refuse to meet the need of the other. But the good news is all it takes to break this cycle is one of the couples, one of the individuals saying, you know what? The change I want to see in my marriage has to begin with me. The revival I want to experience in my marriage, let it begin with me. So regardless of how I feel, I'm choosing to love or I'm choosing to respect. And the rewarded cycle on the right is when even if I feel not loved, I'm going to choose to respect. And even if I don't feel respected, I'm going to take the first initiative and show love. And over time, your spouse will be motivated to reciprocate. And your spouse will be motivated to respond to you. And what will happen is that his love will motivate her respect. And her love will motivate, or her respect will motivate his love. And you have this energized, fulfilling marriage when you focus on meeting the need of the other person. Lastly, to love and respect your spouse is an opportunity to love and respect Christ. To love and respect your spouse. The way you treat, the way you talk, the way you make decisions with your spouse is a God-afforded opportunity to do the same to Jesus. Notice what Paul said in Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for who? Christ. Out of reverence for God. Out of reverence for Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, husbands, you love Jesus through loving your spouse. And wives, you love Jesus through or you respect Christ through respecting your husband. So in the shadow of your spouse, you want to see Jesus and be motivated out of reverence, out of love, out of delight in God. We're choosing to treat our spouse that way. Would you stand on your feet today as we come to this close this morning of a four-week journey? I know that each and every one of us are in different places when it comes to our marriage and whichever stage we might be in or whichever cycle we might be in. When we do sermon series like this, I know that we're, we're constantly preaching for the ideal, but we pass through in the real. So there are people in this room in, in Missouri City. You're on the other side of marriage where you tried and someone still walked out on you. And your marriage still fell apart. And you've been hearing these sermons and you're hurting inside or reminded and today, my prayer for you is that God will bring healing and reinvigorate purpose and meaning in the stage of life you're in because he loves you. You're not disqualified from the plans he has for you. He wants to do something great in you and through you. So don't let your past hold you back from the amazing future that God's got prepared for you. Maybe you're single. Today, I want to pray that you focus, like we talked about, on becoming, not just finding, but on becoming the right one God's called you to be. And I know there are couples in this room, you're in that crazy, vicious cycle, running on empty, running on fumes. And maybe you're looking at each other's differences and saying, I'm not sure this is gonna work. And you've lost a vision, a hope, a meaning for why God brought you together in the first place. 
wanted to read to you this excerpt from Kay Warren, Rick and Kay Warren. Rick and Kay are pastors of Saddleback Church. You know them and you've seen their church reaching thousands of people all across California and the world. But she began to talk about our marriage and she said, she said, there's no way that our marriage should have made it. I was abused as a child and that led to all these consequences. We were so different. When we got married, we realized how different we were and we lost a child. It should have torn us apart. But in her vulnerability, she wrote this statement that I thought was so profound and she said this, I know what it is like to be cracked open by catastrophic grief and to share it with your spouse when you're so different. We've beaten the odds that divorce would be the outcome of our ill-advised union. We've weathered my breast cancer and melanoma. We've survived the mental illness and suicide of our son, Matthew. And now we know that we are the best thing that has ever happened to each other. We wouldn't be who we are today without each other. Each of us, listen carefully, each of us is not who the other person was looking for. But each of us is who the other person desperately needed to become the person that God has called us to be. And she concluded this article by saying, the shrieks of iron, sharpening iron, have often sounded like gears grinding on bare metal. But the result has been profound personal growth in both of us. This might be what you're living at right now. Sounds like gears against bare metal. But this is the way that God reflects his beauty and image. And two people who are so different unite and yield and love and respect and serve one another despite of their differences. Would you bow your head with me? And in fact, if you're here with your spouse, would you just take the hand of your spouse or put your arm around your wife or husband? If you're single or not with your spouse today, would you just put your hand over your heart? We want to lead a moment of prayer for you. We want our marriages to be strong. We want our lives as single adults or as married couples to be thriving in the plans of God. So, Father, here we are today yielding our hearts to you. God, as we sang earlier, in your presence, miracles happen. Wonders happen. And on both campuses today, as we stand before you, would you perform a miracle in our heart? Maybe for someone who has lost a vision of your calling, your purpose in their life, of a marriage in this room or in Missouri City, or someone watching who is saying, we're at the end of the road, we're ready to quit and give up today. May you inspire, awaken hope, faith. God, will you enable husbands to love their wives as Jesus, to imitate your love, your sacrifice, your forgiveness. God, may you inspire the ladies in our church to respect, honor their husbands, even without judging. May in this moment, God, will you fashion, will you form who we are as people, as families, to your glory, to beautifully display to the world the unity found in the triune Godhead. So that when people see our marriages, they will see the steady hand of God. And for those in this room that are single or in some stage of their life, may you strengthen, speak life. Will you motivate them with a new vision of what you've designed in their life, in the future that's ahead of them? May they see it full of faith and hope. And if there is anyone today, God, under the sound of my voice, that's far from God, may we look towards Jesus who gives us a fresh new start, a new life. 
irrespective of our past, our sin, our guilt, you invite us to come to you and experience a new life, rest in you. Today we thank you that our sins are forgiven, that we are washed clean by the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for pursuing us and saving us when we didn't deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Come on.